It's time for the Plan with Dan podcast, the show that will help you discover and achieve your true purpose for money and make you a more confident investor. We'll talk about sane and intelligent approaches to financial planning. Now, let's Plan with Dan. This is the Plan with Dan podcast. I'm Mark Haywood alongside Dan Betzel, founder of Betzel Wealth Advisors, serving you in the greater Columbus area with an office in Gahanna, right near the airport. You can find him online at BetzelWealthAdvisors.com. That's BetzelWealthAdvisors.com. Or you can reach out, call the office at 614-472-4510. That's 614-472-4510. Dan's been doing this for almost two decades, so he's got a lot of wisdom to impart to us on the podcast today. We look forward to that as always. Dan, hello and welcome into the show. Hey, how you doing, Mark? Always a pleasure to be with you on the podcast, Dan. Always fun to dive into the nitty-gritty of our finances and see what you've come up with, see what the producers (laughs) have come up with. You never quite know where they're going to go. Let's kick it off today with a bit of news. Excellent. Extra, extra, read all about it. That's right, Dan. We love to just dive into the news, see what's going on in the world around us, and see how we might apply it to our finances. Forbes recently published an article breaking down how much money you'd need to be part of the top 1% of the world. And the answer, Dan, it actually might surprise you a little bit. Well, maybe not you, but the person listening, maybe. Of course, you've already got this, but anyway, I digress. If you are living in America and have a net worth of at least $871,000, you're in the top 1%. And this is, I think, almost maybe the crazier stat to me. A net worth of just $93,000 puts you in the top 10% in the world. And, of course, my question is how, if at all, should this change the way we view our wealth? Yeah, so, you know, when I first read that, I'll, you know, I'll admit I was a little shocked. If I were guessing, I would have guessed you know, much higher numbers. So I basically had two like very visceral reactions to this. I mean, on one side, it was kind of like, you know, what I heard growing up, you know, eat your vegetables because you know, there's kids in Africa who are starving. You know, it like it seemed like so unbelievable that I couldn't even like, you know, let it into my consciousness, you know, but really my real reaction to it, you know, take a deep breath and just sit back for a second, you know, and be in awe, you know, be grateful for the amazing wealth and the ability, the amazing ability we have to create wealth in this country. And I think that's the lesson I'm taking from it is, you know, there's nothing wrong, I don't believe, with creating wealth and trying to improve your situation, your family situation, your community situation, and helping out, you know, the global community. And it certainly is very important to be a good steward of our wealth. But it's also I think totally appropriate and I think probably very, very positive for your well-being is to stop for a second in the midst of all of the working and the planning to say, wow, we are certainly fortunate. That's what I'm taking from this. Be grateful. We live in an amazing country that allows us you know, to build and create wealth and it's not easy and it's not the same for everybody. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying no matter where we find ourselves, I think we can all agree we're pretty lucky. We are indeed, Dan. It's important to kind of think back and reflect a little bit, especially now that we're in the beginning of the year. I know a lot of folks make resolutions this time of year, right, especially coming Mm -hmm. off of the holidays. But it is important just to take time and reflect and think, how are you going to use this wealth for the greater good, right? How are you going to live with purpose in retirement? So thanks, as always, for bringing us back to that, Dan. Well, now let's take a turn, Dan, and get to know you a little bit better. It's getting to know you time. 
Dan, we have a rather meta question for you this week. I hope you're ready to go deep with us. Maybe not, but it could be something quite simple. I don't know. But this week's question, to get to know you a little bit better, if you could send a message to yourself 30 years ago, Hmm. what would you tell yourself? Wow. That's really interesting because my daughter's 30 years old, so I can certainly have a reference point for when that was. That's a really great question. So, you know, I think what I tell myself, uh, hopefully I would, would listen, but at the time, you know, I was practicing law and law is extremely demanding and takes a lot of time and I was really busy building my, my law practice. I think I would tell myself to work less and to worry less because, you know, when you're young, you have all these responsibilities and you want to make all these things happen and you're not sure they're going to happen or not. And in reality, when you look back, it's like, Wow. I think I worried too much and I worked too much. Not that it was all bad. I did a lot of great things as well. But that's what I tell myself, you know, hey, take a deep breath, calm down. It's all going to be great. Work hard, play hard, work a little less and cut your worry like a lot. Like by 90%. How about that? (laughs) I think it sounds great, Dan. And I do. I do. I think we're in a culture that more and more is anxious. We worry about everything. We worry about our finances. And we work. I mean, America contributes in these amazing ways in the fields of science and technology and uh, faith and the arts. But we're one of the most stressed out cultures on the planet. And sometimes we just need to find time for ourselves and rest. Absolutely. But that's yeah, great question. Thank you for asking. Yes, a great question to ponder. We're probably not going to solve it on the podcast today, but certainly glad to see your perspective there looking back. And honestly, I'd be interested to do this with you in another 30 years and hear what you might have to say to yourself then. (laughs) Oh, I don't I mean, okay. I hope I hope stay tuned. (laughs) Stay tuned, everyone. (laughs) 30 years. We'll come back to this one. Oh, boy. Well, now, Dan, as always, this brings us to one of my favorite parts of the show, Mind Over Money. Yeah, mine too. Let's take a look at some of the psychology behind investment behavior. It's time for Mind Over Money. Well, Dan, as always, I'll hand the microphone to you from here. What do you have for us this week? Yeah, so I want to share with you. So I, I had a call from a prospective client, and of course, he didn't really understand, you know, how I do business. But you know, he was basically calling, you know, for a stock tip. You know, and anyone who knows me, who was work with me, knows that I don't give stock tips there because there really aren't any. But he made a question. He said, "Do you agree that you know Apple is a great buy right now? You know, because its value is slightly lower than it was yesterday." And I thought, oh my gosh, this poor guy is experiencing uh, what we call in the behavioral finance world, anchoring. You know, an anchoring is a bias. We call it anchoring bias. It's this behavioral finance theory that people will often over-rely on an initial or maybe just one piece of information when making decisions. I'll give you an example. So if you go to a store and you see the first shirt is $90, you go, wow, that's expensive. And the second shirt is $55. And you think, wow, that's a good price. I mean, that's like a simple example of it. Not that you would be fooled by that with something so tangible as a shirt. But nevertheless, you know, you're looking at the first price and comparing it to a second and you're drawing a conclusion from that that may not be the best thing for you in your financial future. Another example um, is uh, say you're going to buy a used car and all you focus on, you focus on excessively is the odometer reading and the year of the car. And you use those criteria as your sole basis, you know, for evaluating the value of a car. 
rather than considering, you know, other things like the engine or the transmission and all these other very important things. And in the world of financial planning, often that's what people will do. They will anchor, you know, they'll throw their anchor at a specific date, you know, or they'll throw their anchor in a specific stock and they'll use that then as a perspective, you know, to make decisions. And it's sometimes very hard to get them to say, hey, can you please pull that anchor up a little bit? We need to take the boat out a little bit and look at a bigger picture. And make our decision with, you know, more criteria than just where you've thrown the anchor. So be mindful, you know, as you go about life, not only in the financial planning world, but in, you know, in human relationships, you know, have you thrown your anchor somewhere that's blocking your ability to see the whole picture? I hope that helps. Oh, it certainly does, Dan, as always. I love this segment. It actually got me thinking how recently in Europe, and I can't remember which country this would be much more interesting if I could, but I believe it was France. I'm going to say France. If I'm wrong, I apologize. Google it and we could quickly find the answer. But they recently reworked the standard for the kilogram. Uh huh. And yeah. they actually have what is considered to be the physical representation of one kilogram locked away in a vault. And over time, they found it was no longer accurate. And they had to come to an understanding of what the standard would be going forward. And, of course, that's really hard to do because for a very long time now, there's been a physical kilogram by which all <laughs> other kilograms were measured. And so that certainly just brings up the point that I think that you're, set, that you're trying to make. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, as always, Dan, thank you for sharing your perspective in Mind Over Money. We appreciate it. Now let's kind of dive into the main portion of our show. Dan, today, quite simply, I just want you to share with us some of the mistakes you see people making as they're walking through the door in your practice. Prospective clients, folks you're working with, just some of the financial mistakes that we're making. Yeah, that's really a great topic. And uh, I have to admit, you know, some of these I've uh, made myself or become very, very close to making them. Um, Okay, so I, I, I can come up with five or six. I think the first one that I get asked a lot but let me back up for a second. First of all, I want to say is, you know, I don't know who's listening to this and I don't know if you're a current client of mine or not. So please don't take any of this as one size fits all or this is some dogmatic truth. They're my opinions, my general rules that I tend to follow. And, you know, I'm sure for every single one I tell you, you can probably come up with some series of facts, you know, that it would make sense to do the opposite of what I'm saying. So be careful. This is education. It's to get you to think. I'm not telling you to go out and do these. If you have any questions, Questions, you know, speak to me personally or, or speak to some competent financial advisor. Is that fair? That certainly sounds like a fair <laughs> disclaimer to me, Dan. Okay, okay, great. Okay, so often I'm asked, you know, there's two types of life insurance. You know, there's basically term and then there's permanent insurance. And I'm I'm often asked which is better. And, you know, for most of my clients, the reason they purchase insurance is because they want, you know, income replacement, they want the death benefit. And for most people, it's much better to purchase term insurance because basically why it's cheaper and you can buy more coverage. You get more bang for your buck. Now, there's certainly exceptions if you're looking at, you know, estate planning issues or wealth replacement issues or estate equalization or long term care. You know, that, that's a different story. I'm talking about your general person who comes in to see me and we're looking at they have $200 or $300 a month to put toward risk management, toward insurance, should they buy term or permanent? Well, you're going to be able to get a whole lot more coverage, death benefit in the term world than you are in the permanent world. So that's my general rule of thumb. A general rule of thumb from Dan. Let's continue going through these, some of these mistakes. What about borrowing from your 401k? Why is yeah, that a problem? Yeah, so I just spent, I don't know, 45 minutes or an hour 
maybe 10 days or so ago, someone wanted to borrow a significant amount of money from their 401k. And they, you know, from their perspective, it's like, what's the problem? You know, my employer lets me do it. Every paycheck, I'm going to be paying it back. I don't see it's a problem. And I had to tell them, I think that it's potentially a very serious mistake. And and why is that? Um, I can see why they didn't think it would be because, you know, they're going to pay it back. It's going to take them eight or nine years to pay it back because, first of all, the entire time that you have the money out of the account, it's not working for you. And remember, the purpose of your 401k is to have long-term growth so that you can have income when you retire. So if you pull that money, that capital out of your 401k and you pay it back over time for the next eight or 10 years, it's not going to be growing for you. Matter of fact, your return on that entire portfolio is going to be severely limited because you pulled that money out. And what some people don't realize is if you ever leave the employer, then at that moment, the entire loan becomes doable. I've had this happen to people. They weren't aware of this. And not only if you can't pay the loan back, then it becomes taxable. And if you're 59 and a half, there's a 10% penalty. So please, unless it's absolute, there's no other way that you can get money for something that you must have, you know, to pay for a, a surgery to save someone you love's life. You know, don't take money out of your 401k. There's so many other ways to get access to money. So that's my second. And the reasons that so many people often are tempted to borrow from their 401k is they don't have sufficient cash reserves. So I tell everyone, you need to know how much money you need per month to keep roof over your head, to keep food on the table, and to keep the lights going, and to keep you know gas in your car back and forth to work, and times that by a minimum of three. I prefer maybe five or six months, but a minimum of three months, and that money should be in cash reserves. I have difficulty at times convincing clients to do that because they say, well, I don't make any money in the bank. I tell them, well, that particular amount of money, those cash reserves are cash reserves. They're there so you can sleep at night. They're there so that if you do have to get a new transmission in your car, you don't have to put it on the credit card and you don't have to take it from the 401k. It's not your vacation money. That's something else. This is cash reserves for those emergencies you know, that you're going to need in the future. So if you're interested in creating wealth or if that's your goal, which I know is almost all of our goals, you, know, uh, you can do that by not borrowing from your 401k and making sure you have cash reserves, a minimum of three, preferably six months. Does that make sense? Oh, it certainly makes sense. And it's something I think folks don't think about too often. Quite frankly, they don't have enough cash sitting in reserves. They're not prepared for those life happens moments. And so, of course, on this podcast, we want you to do that. We want you to be prepared and we seek to help you get prepared. Now, my fifth and sixth, I have to admit, number five, I almost did this. I almost made this mistake myself. And number six, I I have made this mistake in the past. You have to stay tuned if you want to hear the mistake that I did make. But the fifth mistake that I didn't make, but I was close, was purchasing a timeshare. I don't know. A lot of you probably have gone on vacation. You know, you get invited to listen to these um, basically sales pitches on timeshares. And they sound really wonderful. And, you know, and there are some wonderful things about them. You know, they if you want to spend more time with your family, they promise you that, you know, you're going to have this vacation, this dream vacation every year. And because you're going to make the investment, you're going to go, you know, and I'm privileged to see what happens with so many of my clients. And there are some that do enjoy it and they have made it work. But for the majority of people, what happens is they no longer can go. The children grow up and don't want to go. And the monthly service costs, you know, they continue. They have to pay these monthly service costs no matter what. And then when they go to sell it, very hard to sell. And probably if they're lucky, 
they can just sell it for a minimal loss. Sometimes they have to take a significant loss because they want to stop with the monthly service costs. And there just are so many ways to do vacations. There's so many different ways to rent condos anymore. Um, I really don't think for most people, you know, a timeshare is not a great way to build wealth. Now, I know I might get some pushback on that, but that's been my experience in working with clients. So uh, go on great vacations, but I don't think you have to have a timeshare in order to make that happen. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) so, but like I said, I've, uh, you know, I I seriously considered it one time because I just love the idea of of having the whole family together and us, you know, going back to the same place. And, but in retrospect, I'm very glad that I did not because now we're free to, to try a lot of different places and I don't have to pay that monthly service cost. Now, number six, which I have done in the past, I do not do this anymore. It's, um, you know, how should you purchase a car? Should you lease it or should you buy it? And, you know, I've come to the conclusion that it's probably the leasing is probably the most expensive way to purchase a car. So, you know, what are you actually doing when you lease a car? Well, you're buying the equity value of the car. But here's the issue. Often, it's been my experience, you know, you you use more of the equity value that you initially paid for in the lease agreement. So when you turn it back in, uh, you now owe thousands of dollars because you know you've gone over the mileage limit, or there's been excessive wear and tear, or you know, or, or whatever. And if you tell yourself, "Well, I'm going to buy it at the end of the lease," in my experience, most of those purchase buyout options are top dollar. You've lost all your ability to negotiate, you know, the price because it's locked in by the contract. So I really think if you want to build, if your goal is to build net worth then I think the best thing to do is to buy a car that's a year or two old, you know, where the initial decline in equity has already been taken out of it. You know, buy yourself a nice car. If you want to buy yourself, you know, a, whatever car is really nice to you, go ahead and do it. I suggest that you don't buy a lease if your goal is to create and build wealth. Now, it is a wonderful lifestyle choice if every two years, say, the lease expires and you want to go and drive a new car. I mean, that's really, really nice. I would encourage, especially my people are just starting out, trying to pay off school debt, trying to get the mortgage under control, you know, the baby's on the way, that it's not a good way for you to build wealth. You know, perhaps when you're you know, 50s and 60s, maybe you would, would reconsider the issue. But uh, I would just encourage you. So if the goal is to build wealth and not make some of the financial mistakes, I'll review them quickly. It's be very careful the type of insurance that you purchase. Don't borrow from your 401k unless it's an absolute life or death situation. Get some cash reserves three to six months. Stay away from the timeshare. Have a great vacation, but don't lock yourself into the monthly service costs for the rest of your life. And seriously consider purchasing your car rather than leasing it. I hope that helps the listeners or gives them at least something to think about. Yes, certainly. We don't want you to make these mistakes. That's why we're going over some of them. Dan, what does it look like just to get financially in shape, to come in and if you are making these mistakes, just get them out there. If you have questions about your finances, how to get off on the right foot. I mean, what does it look like to get financially organized? Yeah. So, I mean, we're all human, right? We all make mistakes. Don't beat yourself up over it. Just, uh, I think, educate yourself. You can educate yourself in numerous ways. Call the office and ask me a question. Send me an email. Go to my website. You can request a retirement rescue toolkit. I would love to get that into your hands. And come in and sit down with me, and and we can go through a process uh, where you can begin to uh, take the proper steps to achieving, you know, real financial peace of mind and getting your financial house in order. If you'd like to come in for a visit with Dan Betzel and his team at Betzel Wealth Advisors, you can do so by dialing 614-472-4510. 
That's 614-472-4510. Give Dan a call. Get on the calendar to come in for a visit. Just call that number, 614-472-4510. Dan, as always, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks a lot, We'll do it again next time on another edition of Plan With Dan. Fee-based financial planning and investment advisory services are offered by Betzel Wealth Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor in the state of Ohio.